This episode of TV's Top 5 is brought to you by the Stars limited series, Mary and George. Julianne Moore and Nicholas Galitzine star in the scandalous true story of Mary Valliere, who molded her beautiful and charismatic son to seduce King James I. Quite the moment in history. See why the Hollywood Reporter calls it a delicious drama. Mary and George, for your Emmy consideration for outstanding limited series and all eligible categories. Mary and George is now streaming on the Stars app. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host and THR's chief TV critic, Mr. Daniel Feinberg. Dan, what's shaking? How you been? Oh, I'm just waiting patiently for an Ikea shipment, Leslie, but, you know, otherwise, business as usual. Yes. Well, this is the time of year when, with upfronts over, news traditionally slows down, and, well, that is certainly true this week. It's been, you know, obviously we had the Memorial Day holiday, but it's been pretty quiet. Um, So let's just dive into headlines. What do you say? Absolutely. In development news, Amazon is prepping a TV series based on characters from The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. A hot TV package is making its way around premium cable networks and streamers who are bidding for a live action comedy called The Wildest Animals in Griffith Park with Caitlin Deaver and Joey King attached to star in the script from the duo behind The Peanut Butter Falcon. It's got an amazing nine minute uh, pitch that was done remotely that THR was able to screen. It's incredible pitch. Absolutely incredible. And it's a very it's basically redefining the way that that these Zoom pitches are going. Speaking of creative duos, the Softy Brothers, the duo behind Uncut Gems, they've reached a first look deal with HBO. So expect vaguely nauseating, nerve wracking drama series coming from them sometime in the future. In renewal news, FX has officially picked up What We Do in the Shadows for a third season, while WarnerMedia-backed Adult Swim has revived Netflix animated comedy Tuca and Birdie for a second season, a year after it was canceled at the streamer. This is the second deal of its kind, where you've seen a canceled Netflix show wind up on a linear network, um, following One Day at a Time. And we'll have more on One Day at a Time in our first segment this week. Ooh, that was a good tease for our first segment. Yes. Anyway, yay for Tuca and Birdie. Uh, you can also hear Raphael Bob Waxberg, the uh, executive producer of the show, in one of our past podcast showrunner spotlights where he talked about what happened with that unfortunate cancellation. And that would be our January 31st episode. Excellent. I wasn't sure if you had that immediately handy. God, that was January 31st. Wow. Feels like a year ago. I would have thought that was last year somewhere. Okay. And in pandemic-related updates, FX has officially delayed season 10 of American Horror Story from its planned Halloween launch to 2021, which I guess makes sense. And rounding out this week's headlines, Apple has picked up the Haiti Lamar limited series starring Gal Gadot after it was previously developed and picked up at Showtime. This is, of course, the series from Sarah Treem, who, well, Look up Sarah Treem in The Hollywood Reporter, and I will leave it at that. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's five topics. Number one. 
HBO Max officially launched this week. We did a full preview last week, and you already know that the entire Friends catalog is available to stream for the first time since it left Netflix, and that all of Big Bang Theory is available to stream, etc. But it isn't just the huge shows that you've already heard about that are available on HBO Max. The beloved dramedy Men of a Certain Age is available to stream for the very first time on any platform. That seemed like a good occasion to bring in one of our favorite podcast guests. This is his third appearance. We are happy to welcome friend of the five, Mike Royce, who co-created Men of a Certain Age and also worked on such fine, wonderful shows as One Day at a Time, mentioned previously in this podcast, and Enlisted. So we first wanted to talk a little bit about Men of a Certain Age finally making it into the streaming world. Uh, talk a bit about sort of how you were told that it was going to be part of this HBO Max launch. First of all, I couldn't be more thrilled. It's it's as if I am premiering a show as far as I, like, I'm that excited <laughs> about it because it's been in this limbo. It was produced by Turner Studios. It never quite fit in with uh, the app that they put out afterwards because I think with the general amount of the general kind of content that TNT you know, did over the last, I mean, almost decade now, Men of a Certain Age was just sort of an outlier, even though it was very well appreciated and there were so many people at the network rooting for it and supporters and stuff. It just didn't fit into any concept. And then, you know, Warner has gone through an entire journey, I think, getting to HBO Max, which I'm not really a party to, but like they, it was just in a, in a twilight zone of streaming. And it, so it wasn't streaming anywhere and they wouldn't sell it anywhere either. You know, I don't, again, not just because they were trying to figure out their own content uh, situation. So over the last year, I've been in touch with some of the people at HBO Max and they've been, you know, alluding to, yes, we think it's going to be. But I, I true my contacts, I don't think were, you know, didn't know exactly so <laughs> or, or were unable to tell me. So I literally woke up on uh, whatever it was, Tuesday morning, uh, Wednesday morning and um and actually, Alan Sepinwall texted me and said, it's on. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, you know, a rare text from a from a reviewer that you, you know, that was urgent that you want to see. <laughs> so does this mean that you're also going to be getting one of those big, fancy, it's streaming now deal checks in the mail? I mean, was there any kind of discussion about how that worked? Or is it just surprise your, your show is streaming and maybe there'll be a check in the mail? You know, you've really tapped into the problem with show business. Is I'm just like, it's on. I don't know. Oh, right. They should be paying me for that. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm going to do some detective work about that. I certainly can't. You know, uh, it's not like uh, there were uh, a, there wasn't a bidding war. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but it's just so surprising to me that a show that you created just presto winds up on a streaming service, and and you were the last, literally among the last to know. It's true. It's true. It's uh, again, I'm just so happen? grateful for it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should get out of that mentality. I'm sort of fascinated, though, by the process, because as you said, you'd had sort of casual conversations. But how frequently do those conversations happen? And what are you told when you're in those conversations about how much other people want to get this show out into the world? Well, I mean, honestly, they were a there was there's two separate kinds of conversations. There's the conversations before HBO Max happened, which was me pushing my lawyer, pushing people at TNT that I was still in contact with, pushing, you know, I, I think Ray got some his people uh, just 
asking, is there any way, mostly we were trying to sell it places, you know, but we never quite got any answers whether we could sell it, whether there were buyers, potentially there were always people who were like, this show should be streaming. But it always seemed, the answer always seemed to be in a vague, sort of unsatisfying way. We don't know what's going on with it. And I think that just means, you know, <laughs> within Warners, there was just, they're trying to figure out their streaming. Um, it's been years of them trying to like get in the same direction. So this became, that, I think, I guess part of that. I don't know that, but I, I assume it just got caught up with all the other properties. Then in the last year, I have a contact at, at you know, basically at HBO Max who, you know, said that it was going to be on, couldn't confirm it, was very positive <laughs> and just wasn't, I think, close enough to the actual, you know, making of the lists of shows. I mean, lists of shows came out, very comprehensive lists that Men of a Certain Age wasn't on. <laughs> so I just assumed it wasn't going to do it. Um, and then, by the way, I, I don't, you know, this is Hollywood Reporter podcast, but a contact, somebody, somebody, a, a reporter for a different publication actually uh, did some, detect, <laughs> just asked a question and uh, the day before confirmed that it would be on HBO Max, but didn't know exactly when. So maybe it would be at the premiere, but maybe not. <laughs> Well, just to tease the show a bit for people who didn't watch when it was on TNT, we've had a few years now to kind of get used to the idea of Ray Romano being actually a great dramatic actor and Andre Brower actually being <laughs> funny as hell. Do you guys feel like you were kind of ahead of the curve on a number of different things, making use of that fantastic I cast made that you had? all those guys' careers, all of them. <laughs> I made them who they are. Just me, not even Ray, just me. No, uh, I mean, in a in a funny, we do joke. First of all, when we started doing the show, Ray very quickly was like, "Oh my God, Andre's the funny guy!" Like, 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 who knew? <laughs> you know, because I we've told this story before, but pre Men of a Certain Age, we did we Googled for any literally any Andre Brower funny moment, <laughs> and I swear to God, the internet is devoid of funny Andre Brower material. He he just obviously has such dramatic. Wait, I mean, he's one of the greatest actors of all time. And so it was all heavy duty direct. He was, he's in duets. That was like our big, he's in duets, but he's kind of the <laughs> straight guy in that. He doesn't really, Paul Giamatti kind of plays against him and is kind of the crazy dude. And so when we put him on the show, obviously it's like, well, he's going to be amazing, but we were curious how the comedy would work. And he actually came and he and Scott both were, you know, people of great renown and they still came and read did chemistry reads with Ray just to make sure it all worked before they came aboard. So they were super gracious to do that. And then Ray, I feel like I had a, I had a preview before anybody else knew. Cause when I was a comedian in New York and we were comedians in, in the early nineties, he was taking an acting class and I went to his acting class recital or whatever. And he did a monologue where he started out with a, basically his standup and it turned serious and it was about his dad and it was so good. And this is like 1992 or something like that. So I feel like I knew in my head that he was who he was <laughs> before a lot of other people did. And do you have anything that you would want to compare the tone to? Because it's definitely kind of genre bending between drama and comedy. And I feel like maybe we're now more comfortable with the tone that that show set than maybe we were right. a few years Especially, ago. Especially uh, uh, after the closer. Um, <laughs> it just, I mean, which is a great show, but just two completely different kinds of shows. Um, I mean, I, we, we, 
look-wise and feel for the drama-wise, we always kind of went off of Friday Night Lights. You know, we, um, we love the naturalistic quality of it. We also used, I mean, Sideways, the movie Sideways is kind of a touchstone. It just a lot of, uh, I don't want to like melancholy, but humor. So it's not, it does, it's not depressing <laughs> melancholy. It's, um, and, you know, we pride ourselves that the stories as, as I guess, small as they feel still had big stakes and moved and, you know, wasn't shaggy to the point of like, I mean, we, we did it. We, we worked very hard to make sure the plots moved forward, even though it was a lot of conversation. Looking ahead, Mike, you are also the co-showrunner of One Day at a Time, obviously a frequent friend of the five here. This is your third visit to our show. Thank you again for joining. Thank you. Um, what's the latest you've heard about when you guys can go back to filming the, the remainder of, of the season on one day? Well, the pandemic obviously is slowing everything down. I mean, I think we would certainly come back without audiences first, but even getting to that point, you're talking about a minimal crew of 60 people in a fairly, you know, in a, in a stage where the air is circulating around, you know, there's plans and guidelines coming out now. I think slowly we're getting accommodated to what could be the reality of the production of it. You also have the animated special that you're doing in June, which will, spoiler alert, is going to lead us to our, our next topic on this episode. But can you talk a little bit about how that episode fits in? And God forbid, if this is the last new episode of One Day at a Time, that airs, at least in its current form, and it's not even its current form, would, would the, does this episode provide kind of a conclusion to the series if that's what it's being used to do? Oh, well, I'm not going to entertain that. <laughs> um, Good. <laughs> yes. For, for one thing, the episode that aired, uh, the last episode that aired was at least a... a a good episode to end on in terms of even this half of the season. It kind of brought together things that people were asking about. And um, there was some closure in that sense. But I'm so excited about the animated episode because obviously it was done out of, you know, how can we just keep things going? But it's turned into, and we don't have the final version yet, it's, it's turned into something I think that's going to be really special. It's not just, well, you know, sort of a gimmick where we can just do it in an episode. And it's, it, it was written, it was probably going to be shot without an, without an audience to begin with because it features, it, logistically speaking, had so many fantasy sequences that it probably would have been unable to be shot in front of an audience. So it was already, and we did that last year with the anxiety episode because of the style of it. So we just kind of go back to like a block and shoot. And um, that was already the intent. And so when Gloria came up with the idea for like, why don't we try to do it anim in an animated way? It was like, oh, well, that this will lend itself at least uh, uh, conceptually to that style. And now that it's really all, you know, we saw the animatic, we're in the middle. I think we're going to see a almost final thing next week. Hopefully it's it's playing so well. And it, you know, the the, the just the, the episode is the conservative Miami Cuban family comes and visits the Alvarez's and. Penelope is, and the rest of the family are worried, how are we going to get through them staying with us and not kill each other? Because we have such different political views. And the episode is all about strategizing how to do that. First, how to avoid it. <laughs> then how, we, how do we win the argument? And how do we get real with each other uh, without, you know, getting into too many spoilers? I, I don't want to say it's like having the conversation that we need to have, but it's sort of about how to have the conversation, <laughs> you know, all the things that you try, all the strategies that don't work and do work. 
And, um, and then, you know, talking specifically about sort of what's happening, uh, politically a little more, a little more, I guess I could say topically than we normally do. That's why we were really wanted to make sure to, we were afraid if we don't come back in time that the election would be over and it really deals with the election. Excellent. Well, we thank you so much for joining us uh, on short notice here. And uh, we're looking forward, both of us, to watching Men of a Certain Age this weekend on yes. HBO Max. And the One list. Day at a Time animated special. Yes. And June this is 16th. a bad time for me to disclose this, but I've actually never seen this. And I own season one on DVD because it's been on my list to watch for years now. And I am so excited to actually finally have the time to sit down and, and binge the whole thing. Fantastic. So, thanks, Mike. Thank you. Thank you very much. Number two. Up second this week, summer is officially underway and June is around the corner. So let's seems that that seemed like a fine time to take a look at some of the most anticipated June TV premieres coming up. So, Dan, we've done this segment before. Basically, I'm just going to rattle through a bunch of stuff that looks impressive to me or interesting to me. And then you just weigh in from time to time. What do you think? I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> Sounds like a perfectly fine way to do a rather formless segment. Yes. Well, the first big June launch is Dirty John, which moves from Bravo to USA Network and sees the Betty Broderick story as its season two narrative with Amanda Peet and Christian Slater starring. Dan, what do you think? Oh, on that one, I think we're going to hold our quick thoughts until the Critics' Corner, because I can actually discuss the show in some, in some form. But it's definitely interesting that we've got a couple of these anthology shows coming back in strange and semi-unexpected ways or shows that probably continued on in ways that they necessarily shouldn't have gone. So we've got... Or things that have moved platforms like the, the Love, Simon update, which moved from Disney Plus to Hulu... Yeah, this is this is a month that I would say is marked by a lot of things in flux, whether it's changing networks, whether it's shows ending, whether it's shows that are making dramatic changes in their second seasons, etc. So, yeah, uh, Dirty John, which I will discuss in a tiny bit more depth as we get towards the Critics' Corner segment, is uh, not in any way connected to the first season of the show both because it's on a different network and it's an entirely different show. Uh, and I don't know that it necessarily really feels like an anthology, regardless of them slapping Dirty John on it. I would say even that there's perhaps something vaguely callous and cavalier to be doing that. But that's just my opinion on such things. Yeah, I mean, but. what you're basically doing is you're you're launching a series that, you know, Dirty John as a title made sense for season one. Obviously, it was that was the storyline. But now you're basically taking this already marketed title that has some kind of awareness it had some kind of awards success I, i'm i struggle to remember what which what got who got nominated from that but connie Britton was definitely nominated for a golden globe i believe is. that is the primary thing but it's basically these when you when you do this it's like a show like you know at least a show like the sinner for example has one character coming back every season even if it's a, an entirely new mystery it's the same character same actor but this is basically a show that Rather than, you know, obviously they're spending a little bit more money to, to market it because it is a new concept and it is a new story. But keeping that title implies some level of quality that you will possibly be getting because it's you're, you're basically just trying to save a couple of bucks marketing a show that people already know and associate with at least premium quality. So and when, and when you figure that the title that they are using as the marketable title that they're slapping onto things is a title related to domestic abuse and attempted murder and now into a season 
which is actually about a multiple murder. It, it feels a little unclean to me, but what do I know? Everyone's got to market and promote things the way they want. Think about the Betty Broderick story as an eight episode limited series about the Betty Broderick story. Right. Let's move on. <laughs> um, Netflix also has uh, the big new releases there are the final season of 13 Reasons Why and Fuller House and season two of Ryan Murphy's The Politician. And I am definitely looking forward to at least checking out the second season of The Politician because the first season was it was a big old mess. And it was a big old mess that by the time that for like six episodes, I thought was genuinely bad. Then the seventh episode jumps forward in time. It becomes basically the pilot for the second season, and I thought it was significantly more entertaining. So there's at least the possibility that the second season might actually be the good show that the politician maybe could have been, but heaven knows the first season was not. So I'm curious about that. I'm also vaguely perplexed by the fact that somehow 13 Reasons Why, a show that should have been a one-season limited series, is somehow going to be wrapping after, God, four seasons that makes no sense to me and but it got that it got to four is impressive because as we've noted many times netflix shows rarely make it that far well netflix shows rarely make it that far netflix shows that had no critical respect after the first season generally don't make it that far and a show that Netflix has had to answer difficult questions about for multiple years. So the many question, different questions too, which which can only mean that the ratings for that show, which we don't know because, as you may have heard, Netflix does not give ratings, but they must be tremendous. That is the only thing I can think of to justify how that show got to four seasons. So a bit of a mystery. And then they went back and edited the suicide scene in season one, which drew so much attention. So. It's all bizarre. And yes, Fuller House coming to an end, which means we will have to wait five to 10 years before Fullest House appears somewhere. And I will try my hardest to ignore all of it. Continuing. Dan, you know what my favorite thing about Fuller House is? What is your favorite thing about Fuller House, Leslie? When Jimmy Fallon read your review to John Stamos. That is a great YouTube clip and must be watched. It, it was a, a wonderful moment, uh, and at least we will always have that. We will always have that. Elsewhere, you've got the new season of The Bold Type returning to Freeform, which will be without a couple of its returning shows until 2021. So enjoy this one while you have it. Disney transfer Love, Victor. So this is against again, this is the Love Simon update that's launching on Hulu and not on Disney Plus. Dan, have you had a chance to check out any of that? I have not yet, but I will definitely be attempting to catch up in the weeks to come. I have I watched the whole season because I you know, I love the Love Simon movie. It, it's one of my favorites. I don't see a reason any reason why this couldn't have aired on Disney Plus or streamed on Disney Plus. It made note this move just screams problematic to me. So Elsewhere, you've got the long gestating Perry Mason update on HBO. This is, of course, Robert Downey Jr.'s passion project. He was originally years ago attached to star in this. And obviously that is not happening. Um, Nick Pizzolatto at one point was attached to, to write and showrun this. That's not happening. Dan, have you seen this one yet? I have not seen it yet because they have not sent uh, screeners to critics, but uh, it has Matthew Reese and the trailers look really, really stylish. So I am very much looking forward to it. Elsewhere, you've got the return of cable mega hit Yellowstone starring Kevin Costner on Paramount Network. Uh, the final season of Greenleaf on OWN, with, which already is at work on a spinoff. 
Then you've got the new season of The Twilight Zone on CBS All Access, which in a change will launch all of its episodes rather than debut them weekly. Dan, any 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 thoughts on any of this stuff? Interrupt me at any time, my friend. <laughs> I'm happy to I'm happy to let you list stuff because the great thing about the uh, about the summer is that it, there is at least some original TV programming, and I am appreciative of that. So uh, no, I keep going because because I will I will then chip in with a lot of things you haven't mentioned that are among yes. the things okay. I'm actually looking forward to. Well, HBO Max, the second wave of their originals launches, including DC Universe import Doom Patrol. Every time I say Doom Patrol, I always think of that part on uh, the part of the Disneyland ride when you're uh, when Vincent Price says, you know, please remain seated in your Doom buggy. I don't know. It's unrelated, <laughs> but that's how my brain works. Also, as part of HBO Max's second wave is TBS Import Search Party, which I know you are a big fan of, too. I am definitely looking forward to the third season of that and am remain utterly flummoxed that that was not part of the original HBO Max series. Me too. Of I mean, that that shows that season has been in the can for it's got to be years at this point. It, it has been in the can for about a year and a half. And it is a thing that they had finished where there was an established audience and established an amount of critical regard. And instead, for some reason, they decided to launch with Elmo Looney Tunes and Love Life. And that's also a show that, as we know, ha it has a really big digital audience from what TBS has told us over the years. So it makes I, I get why they wouldn't launch it on TBS, which, as you know, we've said for many, many months now is probably going to be out of the scripted business pretty soon. If it's not already, I can't I'm, I'm struggling to think of what originals they have left um, on the scripted side. But, yeah, it's, it's just interesting. So, you know, look, this is you know, the summer is typically the time of year when, when you see broadcast networks shift to more unscripted or low cost originals. And, you know, there's certainly some of that. You know, ABC already launched its summer fun and games lineup with all of its retro game shows and stuff. I, for one, am a new addict of Holy Moly, <laughs> filed under brainless entertainment. Um, it's pretty great. It's like watching the the, the broadcasters from, from Dodgeball or an Anchorman combined. But yeah, you know, this is, you know, in terms of linear networks, this is where we're starting to definitely see a little bit of a slowdown and, and some stuff that, that maybe had been planned obviously not happen right now. So... Dan, these are the standouts for me. You you mentioned there's some other stuff that you're looking forward to. Yes, let's get to, let's get to a few other things. Uh, I think that F is for Family on Netflix is an animated show that has, for whatever reason, never gotten the respect it deserves. And probably its greatest sin is being slightly less good than BoJack Horseman and Big Mouth. Uh, but once you take that out of the equation, it's a really, really good, rude, raunchy family period comedy. The fourth season premieres on June 12th, and I really enjoyed the first three seasons. I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to Helter Skelter on Epix because Epix has done solid work in the documentary space recently, and I think a good adaptation of the book would be timely and good. Uh, AMC has a Sherman's Showcase Black History Month spectacular special episode airing on June 19th. Uh, Sherman's Showcase was one of my favorite new shows of last season. And then I'm looking forward at the end of the month to HBO's documentary adaptation of I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which was a very good, very popular book. And I'm looking forward to how they're going to handle it documentary-wise. So we've got all of that. We've got a second season of Nosferatu on AMC. I am not looking forward to that. Uh, <laughs> We have a third season of The Shy on Showtime, which is another one of those remarkable shows that has had to deal with a fair amount of adversity and Behind commentary the on the background. Yeah. And yet 
it's entering a third season, which is fairly remarkable. And yeah, hey, I'm honestly, I'm just happy that there's a lot of new TV shows uh, coming on in June because it will keep us all busy. Yes. Well, that takes us to our third topic this week. Number three. Up third, there's a big old executive change at the artist formerly known as ABC Family, currently known as Freeform, that I will always call ABC Family. I don't care what anyone says. They have a new president. So really, I'm just going to step back and let Leslie tell us a little bit about what went down today at Freeform. Thanks, Dan. Well, this <laughs> week we saw Disney's younger skewing cable network hire Tara Duncan to serve as its president. She takes over from Tom Asham who stepped down last month. He's going to take a take on a, as you would say, Dan, a big old role at Warner Media, and remain on board through the end of June. Tara Duncan starts June 8th, and so there will be some kind of training for her. Um, this is the first time that she is leading a network. Um, it's an interesting choice. They had obviously sped up, you know, the Tom Asham's departure came as a big surprise to everyone, per sources, at Freeform and at Disney. He had, um, I'm told, recently renewed his deal, but then opted to leave for Warner Media, where he reunites with an old friend there. And what's interesting here is that among their, you know, the, the candidates that Freeform had been looking at, there were several, a couple internal candidates within the Disney fold, some people who are outside of Disney who had spent time at Freeform previously in their career, but they went with a newcomer. And, you know, Dana Walden, to whom uh, Tara reports, said in her her quote that she had basically met her a year ago and was really impressed with her as an as as an executive. So, you know, look, Tara comes to Freeform. She had a first look deal at Disney owned Hulu, where she was uh, developing a big project over there that that was high on the network's list or high on the streamers list, I should say. Before that, she was an executive at Netflix, where she oversaw a lot of hits, including Orange is the New Black and Narcos. Um, she launched Spike Lee's rebooted She's Gotta Have It series. She was involved for years on whatever became of Boz Lerman's The Get Down um, she worked on Sensate and Justin Simeon's Dear White People. She was a member of the Hollywood Reporter's 2014 Next Generation class. That is a big list to be on. And from everything that I have heard, she has excellent taste in terms of creative and great instincts. But it's an interesting choice because this is someone who has never run a network before. It's also someone who you've got an executive here who's in her late 30s who's now a little bit actually closer to Freeform's target 18 to 34 target demographic. But yeah, it's I'm going to be very interested to see what she does with this network because, you know, they have a number two, Lauren Correo, who had just started maybe a year ago to replace Carrie Burke. She was hired by Tom Asham. So th this is a lot of change happening at Freeform. So it'll be very interesting to see what she does because, you know, Carrie Burke, when she was Tom Asham's number two and ran originals there, she did a really good job of reinventing this network and kind of steering it away from, you know, as Paul Lee would say, a sticky programming like Pretty Little Liars. And she delivered shows like The Bold Type which and Grownish, which became two of the network's big tent poles. And it kind of redefined what Freeform is as a network. So, yeah, I'll be, I'll be curious to see what she does here. I think there's no question that Freeform is a network that is – still in the process of defining what it 
is. And this is a process that dates back to when it was ABC Family and becoming Freeform as well. Yeah, but and, you and Tom Asham oversaw that rebranding too. So con congratulations on being the, having the, one of the worst names of a, for a platform in the industry. He was the one who taught us all about becomers and that being right. a thing. That was a um, so, word that he made up to, to define Freeform's target demo, as in people who are experiencing a series of firsts in life, first jobs, first love. You get the idea. It's and a then, bad term. And then got very annoyed and impatient at the TCA when we, uh, when we asked multiple questions about it being a stupid name. Uh, anyway, I mean, neither here nor like there. A, it sounds like a feminine hygiene product, Dan. It is. It was not a good name. And Freeform is, I still don't think, a great name because they used to have the ABC brand and they decided to ditch it. Uh, but if you look at the things that are actually on Freeform now, it is a... Uh, They've got some good is, stuff. They totally do. And, uh, you know, if you, if you look, Bold Type is a show with a passionate audience. Something like Everything's Gonna Be Okay, which was definitely one of my favorite shows of the first half of this year. They and have just this, renewed for season two, I should note. Uh, but then they also have Siren and Motherland Fort Salem. So which I put also was just renewed for season two. And so what you're saying is you you're sort of putting these things into kind of I would say two very different side-by-side -side categories. Cause I don't think that Motherland Fort Salem and Siren are necessarily shows that speak to being on the same network as the bold type, everything's going to be okay, uh, the the recently canceled Party of Five. Those shows feel like they're all on the same network. So I'm, I'm going to be very curious to see if, if part of how they're branding the network is something more coherent and cohesive, or if they kind of like having these multiple identities, the on one hand, meaningful, substantive kind of dramedies, and then trashy, trashy, vaguely supernatural things, I will be curious to see how they handle those things because it feels to me like it's a thing that needs to be handled. <laughs> yeah, and at the same time, I'm, I'm told that those those trashy genre plays, what is it, Motherland, Motherhood, whatever it's called, that show and Siren are two, two shows that do extremely well for Freeform with the Fort Salem show growing week to week over its entire first season, which is... Mind -boggling. And this and this does not surprise me in the slightest. It just comes down to a question of how you want people to think about what your network is. And if they made the determination that they didn't really want to be the Pretty Little Liars, that kind of network anymore, which is what they were, the question is what kind of network they want to be. And guess what? That's their job, not mine. I will just keep watching random episodes of things and finding motherland Fort Salem to be bafflingly self-serious. It's M Motherland? Fort Motherhood? I can't remember the name of the show. Motherland it. Fort Salem. I okay. keep saying it. It's really its name. Motherland Fort it's Salem. Gonna be, it's motherhood in my mind. Anyway, well, that takes us to our next showrunner spotlight segment. <laughs> we took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? 
they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Number four. Up next is our showrunner spotlight segment. And we should note that this interview was recorded in January at Press Tour. Our guest this week is the Emmy-winning creator of Bob's Burgers, before that Fox favorite, currently in its 10th season with a movie on its way. Lauren Bouchard's credits included creating or co-creating Dr. Katz, Professional Therapist, Home Movies, and Lucy, the Daughter of the Devil. His new series is the animated musical Central Park is now streaming on Apple. Welcome, Lauren. Pleasure. Let's start with the origins of Central Park. Um, this was originally developed for Fox before igniting a bidding war with Netflix and Hulu before landing at Apple. First of all, you're behind one of the biggest hits for Fox, Bob's Burgers. Why would they pass on this? I don't think they passed ever, uh, per se. <laughs> there was just a kind of a, I think there was sort of a, a, a breath. There was a pause. There was a pregnant pause where they weren't sure if it was right for the air on Fox. And I don't disagree with them. I like how it all played out. So I'm kind of, this is all rose-colored glasses, maybe. I like the idea that in the end, you are trying to put the right thing in the right slot, uh, on the right service, in front of the right audience. In this day and age, you know, it's, it's not ideal to just be siloed into one network or one streaming uh, platform. And so I was sort of, you know, energized and thrilled by that pause, by this moment when they didn't just scoop it up and want to put it on the air. And because they can do that, you know, 20th can sort of, that, this is when 20th and Fox were still right pre-merger. Joined, uh, pre merger Pre-merger. Pre-sale, yeah. Exactly. So they can sell to themselves or they can sell out of the building and they chose to sell out of the building and it, it felt at the time, and I hope they all still feel this way, that it was the right thing to do. And so it wasn't um, – it didn't feel like, oh, you fools, you know, <laughs> we'll show you. It was It was um, m- much more uh, friendly than that. Well, it feels like, you know, based on the two episodes that, that we've seen, it might be a little bit of a you fools type thing. So, well, so why was Apple Plus – Apple TV Plus rather the right place once you had it on the free agent market? I – like I mean, I'm an Apple fan. I have Apple products. I um, really like you know the way that company kind of looks and smells, you know. Um, but frankly, it's the people. Um, Dana Tunier was our current exec on Bob's from I want to say season two to at least season five, maybe longer. She was with us for a long time, and we were so grateful to her to have her during that time. Just felt like this system works, that the network hires smart, young people to guide you when you're tired, when you need a fresh set of eyes. I always found myself kind of struggling with this, um, you know, old school attitude that like the network notes are to be born with a kind of an eye roll and uh, and a little, you know, we'll, we'll feed them a little bullshit and they'll let us, you know, keep <laughs> going. I always was like, don't we want notes? Like, aren't we 
very, very, very unsure of ourselves. Isn't this a like really tricky thing to do to try to pull off to make a TV show that's in its early stages when when the the culture can either accept or reject the medicine? You know, like we, we were like absolutely sure every time she opened her mouth that we were getting a fresh take, good ideas, and most importantly, real passion. She's a passionate executive. And so she moves on from Fox. We stay in touch when she lands at Apple. To me, it was a, uh, it looked really good on Apple. It made me think they were hiring really good people yeah, if they she, got her. She's a good exec. She was over at uh, TV Land for a long time and yes. developed a lot of great shows for them and obviously uh, helped develop Dickinson for Apple, which has been pretty well received, at least from the start. I do want to talk about um, the animation process. You know, Bento Box has been your partner um, since the start on Bob's Burgers. That company is now owned by Fox Entertainment, the new independent broadcast network. And now you're still working with them on this via Apple. Did, did that sale change anything with how you approach the show or how episodes are delivered or, or the communication process between when you write when you write it and, and how it goes out to animation? No, the that sale didn't change anything at all in the building. We're lucky to be working with Bento. They've given us a really nice situation where our shows are together with our shows. Our like little sort of subset of Bento is in its own little space and we really like it that way. We kind of shut the doors and and just try to figure out how to get through any given day uh, all together, you know, and, and this sense of just let us focus on our thing is is they've heard us from the beginning and it's been really nice. They just support us. And then I think Fox coming in to buy Bento, I assume that there was a sense of just let that, you know, that we don't want to mess with anything that's going, that's working. Um, and so it, it, they've just left us to do our thing and continue to support us. Now, this was co-created with Josh Gad, and I was kind of surprised to see apparently he's only guested on Bob's Burgers once because he seems like the kind of guy who would be part of your ensemble, who would be, you know, voicing one of the kids constantly. How did the collaboration come together, and how was that timed around his one Bob's Burgers appearance? It's funny you mention that. The, uh, I still remember so clearly driving to work, early days of Bob's, like probably season one. I'm on the phone with my sister back in Boston, and she says— me and the kids have been watching 1600 Pen, and there's a guy on the show you really got to get as a voice. And I was just paying attention enough, like, oh, yeah, I know that guy. Mental note, like, let's let's try and, you know, wrote his name down somewhere and then proceeded to forget to pursue him for years. And then um, his whole career uh, exploded <laughs> after that. And um, here we are. The way the collaboration on Central Park happened was just a little bit of matchmaking. Uh, you know, when you sign an overall, there is an expectation that you're going to develop and bring new things forward. And so a little bit of the this sort of Hollywood um, machinery as Yentl that like puts, you know, people together and sees if there's chemistry caused uh, him to be in an office with me in Burbank and we were chatting and it, it did he said a lot of things early on that just were too good to let go. It wasn't like, oh, some successful actor who wants to have his own animated thing as a, you know, like, because he thinks it's going to be easy. It wasn't that. He was he was passionate. He was um, full of ideas, but he also really wanted to collaborate and kick the thing around, which I always love. I, I'm a 
a tinkerer by nature. You know, I can't let a thing alone. I'm, I love um, writing a script and then blowing it up and then rewriting it because I I think there's always um, another version that I might like better. Uh, and we do the same in, you know, post-production. We do the same on animation. We do it all the time. Animation you know, favors that kind of personality. I like animation because I can go back in and change the eyeline right seconds before we have to deliver the show. It's like, would it be funny if her eyes darted to the right and then back to the left? We spend a lot of time sitting in rooms talking about that stuff. So that Josh wanted to blow up his first idea, blow up our first idea, you know, that we kept kicking it around was very encouraging. It, it felt like um, somebody we could get in bed with. Now, animated shows often take a considerable amount of lead time to um, produce. Obviously, the animation, the physical animation process takes a long time, plus the writing. So adding a musical component to that where you're writing original songs that not only complement the episodes, but they're actually interwoven with the story. How does that process work and how much longer did it take to develop and, and create these episodes than, say, a typical Bob's Burgers episode? I think that the actual timeline on any given episode is probably about the same, but it's harder. <laughs> I, I, the, I mean, the music is, well, it's two things. It's harder and it's easier, I guess I should say. In success, all the uh, heavy lifting that goes into making, you know, an episode with three or four songs in it uh, work and come together is worth it because that's also a rocket that you're strapping to that episode. And that so hopefully it kind of all the um, sweat that that goes into it up top to make sure the script and the song are totally linked up and to make sure the song is the right length and to make sure the arrangement honors the demo and to make sure the, you know. Uh, but the lyrics play directly into the episode and advance the plot of each episode, which is so like. How does that even, well, you can't just like, I mean, you have a song in episode two from Sarah Bareilles, who my wife absolutely loves. Um, but like, how does that conversation go? Like, so, hey, Sarah, we need you to write this song. This has to be addressed. This has to be addressed. Is that how it works oh, when, yeah. you're, when you're interweaving these in? I was naive about musicals, um, give or take, X, let's say X years ago. Not that long ago, I didn't know that one basic thing about musicals, which is that the songs advanced the story. I think it was Mormon. I think it was Book of Mormon. I didn't see Gad in it. I saw it here in L.A. with another great guy in that role. Um, better than Josh? No. <laughs> uh, there was a moment for me, a real, like, you know, shining light, storyteller kind of light bulb moment where I was like, the stories advanced during the song. These people are professionals. And we, uh, those of us that you know, occasionally sprinkle songs into Bob's or to anything. I don't think we, we were never against that. I just think it, at least for me, it never occurred to me. You, I think you would just assume you stop the story and tell us and sing a song about the emotion. But the real professionals out there who are, you know, white, who really live and breathe musicals, capital M, of course you can do that, but you often want to also move the story forward. And that is this engine that, you know, it, it helps when the song ends and the, and the audience is like, okay, we're still moving. And it helps uh, when the next one begins. So it's, I think there's, um, there's a lot of craft that I'm personally learning from all these real musical, capital M musical people that are, that we're now lucky enough to work with. Uh, and that's certainly one of them. Well, I mean, the musical numbers in Bob's Burgers are 
beloved, but so frequently they're sort of they're lo-fi. You know, it's it's Gene and a and a keyboard going bloop bloop bloop, and then whatever, and everyone thinks they're hilarious. Here you have musical numbers with layered harmonies, with 20 people singing at once, with orchestrations that are rather ambitious. Who thought that was a good idea to do on a weekly basis? It worked, but it sure could have not. Yeah. <laughs> it's very ambitious. It's, it's, I think the ambition is the thing in a way. Why do this? On some level, if you've, you know, Bob's is already a full-time job. It's a really, really great pleasure in my life, one of the greatest, but it's, it's not, doesn't run itself. It's a real, you know, going concern. You got to make every episode as good as it can be. So why add another show? The answer is to see what else you can do and to push and to hope that that makes Bob's better, makes Bob's the movie better, makes the next show better. In success, stretching and going for something that's crazy on some level is the thing we're doing. And and also, I guess separately, just taking Central Park, just taking that kid who's going to sit in front of it, I want them to feel it. I want them to be like, good Lord, this is an ambitious show. I think that's fun. I think it's like, it's tasty as an audience to to kind of, Oh, wow, they were really going for something here. That way, even if you miss, you've got the, you know, here and there, just occasionally, <laughs> if a joke doesn't land or if a story's a little muddy in the act two break or whatever, hopefully the audience is like, well, shit, yeah, of course it was, you know, not flawless. <laughs> it's an incredibly ambitious show. And the pl I think there's a pleasure um, factor for us and hopefully for the audience too. And then separately, I'll also say to your point about the songs on Bob's, it's, you know, there's a, there's a precedent there for me in a lot of ways, which is the Muppets, you know, Sesame Street, Muppet Show, Rainbow Connection, you know, those, the, that like chunk of Henson, like being like going right into my brain from the time I was a little kid. And that, that is deep in there on, on Bob's. It's these sort of silly Songs like Manamana, mana, you know, and and you and that's <laughs> and now that's stuck in my head. Yeah, rest of this podcast, <laughs> and and that's great that we are like following in the footsteps of something that you know hopefully has meaning had had meaning to me can have meaning to someone else in the future. So there's that, and then I guess on top of that, the counterpoint, multi-layered harmonies, ambitious orchestration. That's less the Muppets. They do that too, but the <laughs> but that's. Unless that, that childlike song that just kind of comes out of uh, a creature uh, on The Muppet Show, you know, at 7.30 back when I was a kid, th th that, that it's more polished can also be really, I, I think, um, still, as long as we're not slick, as long as it's, again, the ambition of the harmony or the, you know— the bridge is, uh, you know, changes tempo three times, and the and the genre switches twice. And you know those those um, moments when you when you feel the the um, effort behind it in a good way, um, that can be meaningful too. It's not as childlike, but it's it hopefully goes still goes right into the heart. Well, I know Les is going to want to talk about the Sarah Bareilles song because honestly, weirdos make good superheroes, which is in the second episode. That could just be a hit. That that could I be mean, a top it, forty it, hit. And tell me, you're you're going to release these, at, you know, and, and available for purchase on. I mean, it seems like you're, you're look. You're on Apple. Apple Music is right there. Like, I want that song, and of I want it, <laughs> and I want it on repeat. Yeah. And, but it's also like one of many songs that are really really great. I mean, 
you know, is that part of the, the larger plan for the show? Are you going to, you know, to try and, and bring in a second revenue stream? Because that's what a lot of shows really hope to do in success. But this, it's it's right there. And the songs are great. And it's Sarah Bareilles. Yeah. I um, love that you love that song because um, it is what we were hoping. It's certainly how we reacted to it. We she was, That was the first one. That was the first guest songwriter, first song in, first time doing it. We were we knew we wanted a guest songwriter in every episode except the pilot. So here along comes episode two, along comes Sarah Bareilles. She's so great. She's so game. And then she gives us that. And we all, I collectively felt, maybe we can do this. Maybe we can pull this off. If they go anything even half as good as that went, then maybe we can go out to a guest songwriter every episode. Is there a plan for a revenue stream? I don't know. I would like it to be free, I'll say. I mean, streaming is almost always free now, so I guess that goes without saying. But to me, having the, like, Apple synergy and symbiosis with their music department is is um, exciting, mostly just to, like, yeah, get it out to the people who want it. If you want to mainline this music right away, it's going into your ear pods. It's, it's happening. You can swipe or click or, you know, whatever to get to it quickly. Um, that does... Uh, please all of us because, yeah, we've been sitting with these songs for a while now and it's it's really nice to imagine that they're about to go out into the world. I so- mean, listen, we just <laughs> met, but I'm going to give you my email address so you can send me the song, okay? Yes. I just, I really, really want it. It's so great. But, you know, you mentioned a guest songwriter and, and maybe even performer in every episode. Who else do you have queued up? So I'm going to take a swing at this. Let me see if I get this right. It goes Sarah Bareilles, Rafael Casal, who's did Blind Spotting with David uh, and his Fantastic. He wrote a whole rap battle in episode three between a bunch of old ladies and a bunch of uh, bad guys who work uh, City Hall. We have Cindy Lauper writing two, not one, but two songs in episode four. One is called The Garbage Ballet. The other is about rats. It, they're both um, going to please you, I think, now that I feel like I know your tastes. We have a guy named Darren Chris who is ugly. He's <laughs> Really good. Did you just, make this show entirely like, for Leslie? You're naming like everything that's in my like music library right now. He, I wasn't as familiar with his stuff, but his guitar playing is so good. The song is so good. Um, we have Amy Mann, Fiona Apple. Returning because she also, of course, did a Bob's Burgers song. So yep. nice. Yep, she was sang on Bob's, and now she's composing on Central Park. Um, we were thrilled to have her. Amy Mann was heroic. Both of those two in particular had to bring it in fast, too, which was really nice of them. We've had such a good time. Oh, Megan Trainer. Okay. Incredible. No big deal. Incredible duet. It's so good. We have a uh, guy named Anthony Hamilton. He's an R&B singer. Lovely. Lovely. We repeat the song several times, and each time we sort of change it a little uh, in the episode. You'll see. We have... David Diggs doing one. You won't see that until season two, but he's written this kind of incredible like 70s movie score song uh, for this sort of departure episode that we do in the second batch. Mencken and um, Slater did a like, you know, almost like a what you'd expect Disney, you know, Josh Gad song. I mean, that that's a, an incredible list. I mean, did how much did having someone like Josh Gad and Kristen Bell already attached to this with their music? And obviously David Diggs is nothing to shake a stick at, but... Oop. He's got another, he's got another good one. <laughs> Ingrid Michaelson. Oh. Ingrid Michaelson. She wrote the most beautiful song and it was like one of those things where you're like, "Good god, do you sure you want to give us this?" It was one of those like you you click play and you, my my wife comes over to my laptop. You know, people are sort of like, "What is that?" So yeah, we've gotten really lucky. How much does it help to have Josh Gad 
as the kind of face of the show, it helps a lot. He, he's got this magical ability to make people say yes to things. Uh, and I've never seen anything like it. People are very, very busy. This cast is very, very busy. All the songwriters I mentioned are very, very busy. Um, somehow he he gets people to agree to doing these sorts of projects and it's it's impressive it's 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 really helpful it's how we got the cast and it's how we got most of those well, how much if, do if you, you say give? you have a, i'm interrupting you dan one last thing and then i'll let you go <laughs> if you say you've got brandy carlisle coming too i will just flip a table because this is going to be my favorite show we've who, got no i'm not gonna say it. i mean who do you, i mean who else did, did did you get everyone that you went out oh, no. for or oh no 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 we, we, we went out to a lot of folks um who were who were too busy um i'm really excited to go out to some of them again after they've actually seen yes. what this can be i mean yeah or just can fit it in a, a lot of uh, we got a lot of enthusiasm um from people who just then couldn't do it <laughs> couldn't fit it in um I'm, ex I'm especially excited to try Brittany howard again there's tons of them but what do you give these people? Like, okay, so you've got Sarah Burrell. She'll, she says she'll do a song. Do you give her the script of the episode and say, we need something to fit in at this portion of the narrative? Do you give her the title? Or how much freedom does she have? Or rough cuts of what these characters look like or... Etc. You gotta um, gotta give them the script or as much of it as you have. You've got to do that. They, they they need to know what's what's before and after at the very least, if not the whole thing. Or an outline will will suffice if we're really scrambling. That's the most important piece for sure. Is to to give them a jump start so that the lyrics do have a chance to be deeply integrated and not just tacked on. You will also, in success, um, need to, yeah, quickly familiarize them with the show. If they say yes, then the next thing is like, these are the actors, these are their characters. So yes, a, a couple clips go a long way so they know what voices they're writing for. Um, they're all, this kind of, um, a songwriter, I'm starting to learn that there are songwriters who are sort of fearless and they are going to get it. They're going to get it. It's just like a magical thing. And, and you can give them a note. That's the other thing. If this, if a, a verse here or a line here isn't quite right, they're not precious. They don't care that that was a really good rhyme, you know, because they've got another one. They're <laughs> truly, you know, confident and prolific artists are, they can still be vulnerable. They can still be nervous. They still come with a lot of humility, but they are, there's something there ultimately that's like, yeah, let's, let's fool around with that. Let's play. And so I think that's part of what I'm learning is like finding those folks, Sarah being a perfect example, though everyone I just mentioned is, you're going to get it. Is it hard knowing who's capable of being funny? Because that's the other thing is the songs have to be both effectively earnest, but also amusing. So you don't necessarily know who's actually going to be able to write funny lyrics in addition to heartrending lyrics. Let alone that ones that play into the story. Right. We don't worry about it too much. We have great writers. We have uh, always the, uh, you know, chance to maybe find a joke here or there that we can improve. We can pitch it to the songwriter and that can go into the song if it's a guest songwriter. With our in-house songwriters, they're funny. They're there because they're writing great songs day and, you know, so this, let's take our guest songwriters away for a second as much as you would like to hear more about Sarah. <laughs> That's all you're going to remember about me from this interview. So our in-house people are doing the, the sort of, they're the unsung heroes, though they're about to be very sung, uh, literally and figuratively. They're, you know, Samson Anderson is a songwriting team that has just done incredible song after song after song for us. And then Brent Knopf is this, like, we're so lucky to have him, this sort of indie rock guy who just agreed to drop everything and come be an in-house songwriter for us. And we, and a bunch of other people inside our shop who are good at making music that 
will move the story, might have a couple jokes in it, and also it's just a little surprising. You know, so some of our writers can write songs. And, you know, Nora Smith, one of the co-creators of the show and person without whom I can't do my job, you know, she can just, she's a great songwriter. So we're, we're kind of a little bit pig and shit. We, we're lucky to have all these, these people and have become, yeah, sort of overconfident as a result. <laughs> so who's the Barbie Dream Date guest for you? Who would be the ultimate big get musical artist for an episode? Prince? Uh, sorry. Who, would, who I, wouldn't make us sad? Yeah. Um, no, I don't know. I want, to, there's like a, I think there's me like reaching out into the universe and answering that question, but also I love being surprised. I love not knowing the, the answer to the question. Like, you know, hey, have you heard so-and-so? It's it's really fun for me to, to say, no, I, I haven't. And maybe even then, let's say I click on a couple links and I, I hear a couple songs by this person. You still don't know what they're going to give us. And furthermore, they're not going to sing it. Our cast is going to sing it. So there, it's like taking a songwriter who's a performer, in most cases, for our guests, and then removing one of their, you know, tying one arm behind their back. They're going to write for somebody else. And yet, you know, when it's a Cindy Lauper song, you know it's a Cindy Lauper song. When it's Sarah Bareilles song, you know it's a Sarah Bareilles song. And frankly, I think pretty soon for our fans, when it's a Samson and Anderson song, you'll know it's Samson and Anderson. So um, there's there's part of me that doesn't want to answer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, in a larger sense, you know, the animation space is really booming right now. We've seen, obviously, Apple's entering the space with your show. Netflix launched its own animation studio in-house in a bid to kind of emulate the, the Rick and Morty success where you have the animation and the writing all done at the same time and working in tandem. To what do you attribute this growth? I mean, we've heard that all of these acquired shows on Hulu, like especially yours and Family Guy and Rick and Morty, are among their most watched, if not the most watched acquired shows on their platform. I do think streaming and animation happened in a way that none of us quite could have predicted. I, I am very appreciative to the moment where that happened in the beginning of Bob's when it wasn't a big deal for 20th to license a show to Netflix. And what happened for me was the sort of steady drumbeat of people that I met who were watching the show and wanted to tell me about it, they were w not just watching on streaming, but they were re, 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 re watching. It's instantly bingeable. Yes, but it's like beyond binge. I think of binge as rush through the first season and then you're done and like tell your friends about it. But like this is like wallpaper or, you know, uh, <laughs> on all the time. And my sense is that that kind of relationship you know, is is new and special. You you could DVR it all and 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 cycle it on your DVR, but it's you know in the back you know twenty years ago, whatever, fifteen. But it, this is different. This is it's on your different devices, and you have a, this kind of oh you know you flip fly through the menu and see what season you want to watch or what episode. And I'm suspicious that we lucked into uh, a little bit, in hopefully in a good and healthy way, of a drug dealer. <laughs> Addict relationship <laughs> in a healthy way where there's it's easy to mainline these your your favorite animated show and for some reason it goes down easy it goes well with your I guess your tenth rewatch or your I don't know your hundredth yeah, I and, think the, I think your term calling it wallpaper is, is spot on and you know the thing about the this whole thing that I don't understand is these shows are so huge on streaming platforms but yet. It fails to goose linear viewership on of like an original episode of Bob's, for example. Like no one's watching that, but yet everyone's watching it on streaming. 
It, it's, I mean, does that drive you nuts? It doesn't anymore. <laughs> it's, I mean, it now was, that you're on Apple, you don't even have ratings anymore. Right. The, it was all very terrible. Bob's, you know, I lived, I think, in the last age of looking at ratings on Monday morning with fear and terror. And it was, and I'll never forget it. You know, like PTSD, you know, you would wake up and you, you just want to know the ratings and just keep refreshing TV by the numbers so you could <laughs> see whether you're going to have a job. And, and, and a, a few little ticks up or down or some narrative like, well, there was football or, oh, you know, it was delayed. Uh, anything, you would just cling to that. And then something changed. It was just, I think, the way people watch TV, what networks expected, what advertisers expected, everything just loosened up. And all of a sudden, I had network executives coming to me and saying, hey, man, don't worry. You're fine. Yeah, I mean, and I think part of it, too, is the, the the ancillary revenue stream that animated shows can provide. I mean, yes, everything, every show can get sold to an SVOD player, and whether it's scripted or drama or half-hour animated. But what you guys have is this merchandising line that that has turned shows like Bob's and for Seth MacFarlane, like Family Guy, into multi-billion dollar businesses. Multi-billion dollar. I just want to say that again. Family Guy, not Bob's. <laughs> I mean, yeah. but like at the not same yet. time, and you just, <laughs> but like how big of a business do you think that that is and how much of that is in these executives' mind when they're sitting here saying, I'm going to develop seven more animated shows. I mean, you see what Fox is doing. They're like, I think they have, what, five or six different things in, in development on the animated side. How much is of, of that business is in the back of their mind when they pick up these shows? It's a good question. I, I'm protected. If, if anyone, you know, gave me the, like, the we need to sell more T-shirts pitch, obviously it would be such a turnoff. I'd never want to work with them. So I'm protected. I think that if anyone's like, you know, in a back room somewhere going, hee hee hee, like, you know, we sold more, you know, bobbleheads or whatever. Uh, I don't, I don't really interact with them. Generally the, you know, the merchandising is marketing in my mind. So I still think of it that way. I, mean, I have an underdog attitude and maybe it's naive. Maybe somebody is making a ton of money. But my attitude is always like, I'd like to have some toys and kid robot because I think it has a chance of helping people find the show or love the show or express their love of the show. So to me, I, I don't know if they're making all that much money on merchandising. It's good business, I'm sure. I, I think it's fine. <laughs> but I don't think that's the big win. I do think it's the streaming stuff. I do think it's the, you know, hey, maybe somebody will will like this show enough to bring it into their life a hundred times per episode. And, I'll, you know, we can make a bunch of seasons. And that's if you do the math, like that's a lot of value to these streamers and they'll pay. So I do I, I do think that's going on. I hope though, that there is a sense of a discerning audience. And I hope that anyone rushing to fill their development slate with animated shows will get beat up if they're not making shows with intense care and passion. It would be really disappointing to me to find out that any of these shows getting greenlit now were cynical or were... Um, just because we can types of shows like, oh, let's just pitch an animated show, pitch the Fox, like whatever, like just do it. And like, you know, what, you hate money? And it's like, I, <laughs> I think the like, hopefully the sense of what the streaming moment means is still passionate fans connecting passionately to 
stuff they care about, not um, animation always does well, because that would be a bummer. And obviously, it would degrade the, qu <laughs> the quality of our success or whatever you want to call the moment we're you know fortunate enough to be in. But it would also just be a bummer for I think for the fans. They just get you know flooded with bad stuff. Well, where does the movie? Uh, Bob's Burgers fit into all of that conversation, you know, sort of the the different revenue streams, the different ways of servicing audiences, the different ways of servicing your artistic desires. How do you balance all of those things into a movie? The the last thing you said is the first thing for us. We come to it, you know, very humbly. We are love, love, love working on the movie. It is so deeply satisfying. I never walk around when when we're talking about it, thinking about it, fooling around. In the, in the margins, I never go like, it's going to be a hit. I don't feel that it is appropriate to approach it that way. I have no idea what value this thing will have in the marketplace. And I don't care to, to guess because it fills me with so much fear that, you know, because everyone probably thinks they're making a good movie when they're making a movie. I'm sure that every flop that's ever been made, you know, there must have been like really fun days on set. I'm guessing. I don't know. I don't know anything about <laughs> movies. But like the... <laughs> I, we, you know, we want desperately to bring the fans of the show the movie they would most want. Not the one they even they'd ask for, the one they'd ask for if they could, could, you know, slip past some of the um, easy red meat and into the deep stuff. So that's the goal. It's just like, try to, we have an intimate relationship with the fans. I feel them. I, I am uh, you know, I live with some of them. I, I, you know, I like them. You know, we have no distance between us. We all like the same stuff. We all watch the same stuff, you know, that's not Bob's. So um, our sense is just of an obligation to them to not fuck it up. Uh, and, so, and we approach it that way. Uh, meanwhile, it's also a musical and a mystery. And it's like the most gorgeous um, version of the Bob's animation that we could possibly do. I love working on a 2D animated movie right now. It feels like we're by ourselves. You know, there's that's not what, you know, is in theaters usually. When I take my kids to the movies, it's 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 a CG movie. Um, and that's fine, you know, but I love hand-drawn animation. I love 2D animation. I love uh, working in that medium. I love working on Bob's and Central Park because it's artists drawing stuff. And I can see their hands. And when I look at a board, I know which board artist drew that. I know their style. And so, uh, well, usually, and I, I like to think so. Maybe they're just humoring me. Um, <laughs> I um, love th that, that, that we can take a board and know that the best in success, the best part of a storyboard panel is going to be on the screen. That line that somebody made, yes, it gets cleaned up and redrawn. And yes, it goes to Canada and it comes back, but it, Will and it uh, side trip to Ireland, then back to Canada, then back to us. Um, <laughs> that it is still that line that we're honoring that first mark, you know, that somebody made on a on a tablet. And so I want the movie to honor that as well. It's for the fans and it's for animation. One more before we wrap up. Um, you know, Fox obviously now doesn't own your show. Fox, the network, I should uh, clarify, doesn't own your show or Family Guy or The Simpsons, all of which are now Disney properties, but. And considering how expensive these animated shows get in success and as they age, how much longer do you see Bob's being on Fox? Or do you th has there been any conversation about this maybe jumping to a different platform, say like Disney Plus no, or the Hulu? There's been – well, it's on Hulu. I mean, I mean for first run. Right. 
it's almost like first run, right? Isn't it just a, it's like a <laughs> it's minute behind. Same, and it's right? all eventually going to be streaming, which is what John Landgraf uh, said recently. So yeah. the only high level executives I've heard talking about it was just recently. It was a quote from TCA and it was Michael Thorne or Collier saying Bob's is going to be on Fox for a long, long time. That is where we were born. You know, it's kind of like when a player, you know, um, has a bunch of success on a team and then leaves the team. There's like a little bit of like, oh, ha-ha. Yes, but Disney could stand to make a considerable amount of, of money because all of the contracts would have to be redrawn if it jumped networks. The same is true for The Simpsons and Family Guy. Um, I mean, I, I would be surprised if it didn't happen at some point. I don't know. You may be right. You and we'll, I'll meet you back here, and we'll, we can we can celebrate your prescience. I'll just offer up the other point of view is, I think there's a scenario where Fox doesn't need to own it in order to get what they want from it, and they might want that for a long time. And I believe they. I don't think Disney can pull it. I think Fox has an option every year. So I'm pretty sure, and I don't, I'm no business affairs guy here, um, but I'm pretty sure it's at their discretion. So it won't be Disney pulls it. This is, again, please, all of you executives who I know and love, <laughs> sorry for just uh, blah, 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 about your shit. But <laughs> this um, is my vague impression that it will be an opt out, not a like we're yanking it. Right. It'll be um, a box decision. Yeah. Disney. I think they're, they're, they've got some protection from being gouged. I think there's some increase that goes up every year, but it's, you know, it's probably capped. So it'll be up to them. And if they're out in the world, you know, talking, telling anyone who will listen that they want it on to be on the air for a long time, that then that's the safe money. And just the last question we ask everyone, uh, what do you actually have time to watch on TV? What are you watching? What are you enjoying? I wish I had more time to watch TV. I sneak it in and I am – I have noticed that I, I I do like a drama. I will not consume a lot of comedy or animation and I sometimes feel like a little awkward because I'll want to watch you know, a show that – People are talking about an animated show. I want to watch it. I want to know what everyone's talking about. And then I don't because I just don't click it. And I because it's it's late. I've got to go to bed. I shouldn't be watching anyway. And the (laughs) thing that I yeah, that I'll flick on will be, you know, your kind of event drama like, you know, Watchmen or something like that. I really like that. I really like that crown. (laughs) I I haven't watched the third season, but I really like those first two. Um, So that kind of old fart TV watching, you know, is definitely going on in my house. I still... Um, like watching animation with my kid. I see it now animation through their eyes. So we'll, you know, watch, uh, you know, uh, we'll put on, uh, you know, Spirited Away and watch it for the X time and talk about it. You know, so we're sort of animation nerds in that way, but it's it's Miyazaki focused. Uh, <laughs> it's not like we're, we're up on The Simpsons or we're up on South Park. We were, you know, my kids are too young for that anyway, but we're also just, you know, we're living in this kind of Longer form storytelling, movies and dramas. Um, that's that's me these days. I like a documentary, uh, though I don't burn through them that fast. It's just because it's, yeah, it's it's catch as catch can. I'm like, I'm that midnight guy. You're like, I shouldn't, but I'm going to just put something on. I think that's it. And Queer Eye. Ah. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you. Central Park's first three episodes are now streaming on Apple. New episodes debut weekly. Bob's Burgers will return in the fall on Fox with the feature film currently earmarked for an April theatrical release. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. 
Among this week's major new launches are Rami season two on Hulu. And this is a good reminder to go back and listen to our great December 20th interview with him as part of our big year in review episode in which he talks all about season two. Then you've got Space Force on Netflix and shameless plug number two here. You go back and listen to our April 24th interview with creator Greg Daniels. Central Park on Apple, and you just heard from Lauren Burchard all about it. Quiz on AMC and Dirty John on USA Network. Dan, what you got? That is a lot of TV this week. And I think people will know, of course, that the end of May is the end of the Emmy eligibility window. And I would say that is at least part of why several of these shows are premiering this week. And I feel like I've been mixed for a number of weeks on a lot of the stuff premiering, sort of giving you an, eh, it's good if whatever. But uh, this week, there are actually a bunch of shows that I really, really like. Uh, there is nobody who follows me in any capacity who does not know my affection for Rami. Um, I have told people on several occasions, one or two at least, to watch that show on Hulu. The second season is likely to be more polarizing than the first because uh, I think that it it spends a lot of time on the main character, played by Rami Youssef, uh, going through a lot of, let's say, regrettable decisions in his life. And there's a lot about the main character's ego or obliviousness that makes him a lot harder to like this time around. Now, I think that is completely and totally intentional, and I find it fascinating. And I would say that of the 10 episodes, I thought that nine of them were winners. There was one episode that I didn't like. We can all talk about that later in different platforms. But in general, I found the second season to be generally as rich, as occasionally funny, as often dramatic, as nuanced as the first. I think that Mahershala Ali, who plays a potential spiritual advisor to Rami's character, is a wonderful addition to the cast. I would expect that he will be in Emmy com uh, conversations in the supporting field when we have those conversations. And yeah, I, I watched the entire 10 episodes in a in a rush over the weekend and really, really enjoyed it. People should go back and watch the first season and then tune in for the second season. Central Park, as you may have guessed from our enthusiasm chatting with Lauren Bouchard, it's a real treat of a show. It It is seriously, it is elating and joyful in a way that I think probably at this moment we can all use. I think that it is especially effective when it is in its musical numbers. I think that when it's just being an animated family comedy, it's it's cute but slight. But the songs are absolutely wonderful. It's and so fun. It is so it, fun. It is absolutely a fun, happy, joyful show at a time we could all use such things. So Central Park to me is a treasure. And I think the quiz on AMC, it already aired on British TV, on ITV in the UK. It is about a scandal surrounding alleged cheating on their version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And it's a really entertaining sort of pseudo heist narrative about cheating a game show. But it also leaves a lot of ambiguity. It puts a lot of pressure on viewers to decide what things we already think and what we want to believe and how we make our judgments. Uh, it's got a bunch of great performances. Uh, Michael Sheen is unrecognizable as the host of the UK's Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Matthew McFadden from uh, Succession is wonderful. Sean Clifford from Succession is great. It's it's just a really, really good cast, and it moves 
incredibly fast. It's only three episodes, boom, gone. So that's entertaining. Honestly, lots of shows this week. Space Force is unfortunately significantly more miss and hit than a lot of these. Uh, I found things to enjoy about it throughout, but I did not find those things enjoyable consistently. And so I can list the five or six things I really liked about the show and the two or three episodes I really enjoyed. But in the balance, it's kind of a mess. On the other hand, you know, the great thing about comedy is it's subjective. So maybe some of the things that didn't amuse me will amuse you. I I thought it was pretty flaccid as satire. And then finally, since I mentioned it earlier when we were talking about June, might as well talk about Dirty John, the Betty Broderick story. Um... Christian Slater and Amanda Peet are both really, really good in it. And that's going to be the end of the things that I will say complimentary about the show. It yikes. is eight. A, it is. No, it's not. A, it's not a yikes because those are they're They're the show. So if you wish to say if you say, boy, I wish someone would go, give Amanda Peet a really meaty, juicy role here. It's a really meaty, juicy role for Amanda Peet. It's a it's a good role for Christian Slater. On the other hand, it's eight episodes. There is. No excuse for it being eight episodes. It is it is five episodes of, of TV at the most, maybe four, maybe three, maybe it's almost two hours. I don't even know. It is way, way padded. You can watch episodes of this and feel as if the plot points they dispatched with could have been handled in five minutes. So... I'm not sure about that, and we've already covered my feeling that the that using Dirty John as a catch-all umbrella for certain kinds of storytelling is is really a little bit icky, and that's that's on the networks who feel like they can market a Dirty John franchise and feel okay with themselves. So anyway, basically, Rami, terrific. Central Park, joyful. Quiz, a lot of fun to watch. That's three really good, solid recommendations for a week. And that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. We'll be back next week. Until then, be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. We're always happy to see you on Twitter, so come let us know what you think about what we're doing. If you've got questions for future mailbag segments, you can email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the number 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.